listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on the Book of Acts entitled, The Birth of the Church. Yes, would you turn with me in your Bibles? We're going to be starting a study in the Book of Acts, but we're not going to be in the Book of Acts this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 as we uh, go to the first reference to the church in the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. So if you turn there to verse 13 and stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together. It begins as follows. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my, by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock will I build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we begin this series of studies that your Holy Spirit would begin to prepare our hearts and minds to hear the things that you would have to say. That as we come together like this, Lord, as your church, as the body of believers, we believe because your word tells us that there is something unique and there's a dynamic that takes place through the Holy Spirit's ministry in our hearts that we would not know or experience if we were simply by ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that you would minister to us, speak to us, and open our eyes and our ears to hear what your spirit has to say in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, it may be puzzling that we would start here instead of in the book of Acts. But Acts is really the record of the church following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the real story of the church actually begins in the Gospels where Jesus does something interesting. He takes a rather common, familiar Greek word and he gives it a totally different meaning. That word is the word ecclesia. Ecclesia really meant a select group of people, a specially called group of citizens for some kind of a public gathering. It was more of a political, organizational word than a religious or spiritual one. Rather than using what we might think the Jewish term of synagogue, which was certainly an option, he purposely chose ecclesia because he wanted to say something about the church, that the church was composed of a select group of people, that it was a people who were specially called out individually to be part of a whole new kind of citizenship, a citizenship within what he called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And this was something that was only given to those who chose to believe, to follow him, and to enter into his fellowship. Now keep in mind, in the world of that day, citizenship was a highly limited privilege. It was something that you could receive from birth if you were born within a Roman family. You could receive it by some meritorious act. 
as was probably the case with the Apostle Paul and his forefathers. Or you could simply buy it, as one of the centurions tells us in the book of Acts. If you could raise enough money, you could purchase the right of citizenship. But for most people, citizenship was out of reach and out of the question. But Jesus was forming really a a whole new kind of citizenry, not a citizenship that would be divided by the normal boundaries that we usually find by race or gender or politics or culture or ethnicity or economics or education or heritage, all those kind of boundaries that men create to separate and divide people into various groupings. But he tells us in Galatians 3 that our citizenship is neither composed of Jew or Greek, slave or free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ. Now it sounds that not that unusual to us to hear that kind of a statement because we have grown up in a culture that has been so powerfully influenced by the values of Christianity, it's easy for us to assume that that is how the rest of the world has always functioned. But even today, those distinctions are the distinctions that separate people. And when Paul says Christ has taken away all of those boundaries and says that anyone who believes in faith in Jesus Christ is part of the family of God, part of the body of Christ, is immediately part of the church, then you realize this was something that had never been heard before. And it's interesting because even today within the church, there is often an effort to create boundaries that God never intended. That there's something wonderful, I think, for me as a pastor to look out on this group of people and realize there is no other reason you'd hang out with each other except Jesus. You're divided by age, you're divided by economics, by culture, by education, by status. Through all of those kind of things, we become subdivided. And yet somehow we're all together for one reason, and that's because we have a devotion towards Christ and a desire to be with him, and by extension, a desire to be with those who are called his people. And somehow that gives us a grace and an ability to see past the normal things that obscure our vision and enable us not only to hang together, but to learn how to love each other and in time to see that there is a brotherhood that is greater than the brotherhood of the flesh or the blood. It's a brotherhood of Christ. At least that's what's ideally stated. But essentially that happens because our citizenship is no longer, as Paul would tell the Philippians, viewed from our perspective here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. So that whatever distinctions people may find of separating themselves upon planet earth, in heaven all of those become non-existent. And all of those prejudices and those biases and those, that bigotry that blinds our ability to see people in simply the image of God in which they were created are taken away and we see each other as being the child of God. And that essentially is what Jesus said that he wanted to take place not simply when we all enter into heaven but here on earth that we would in a way make the invisible realities and truths of God visible through the way that we live and love each other in this world. When the psalmist said, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity, he was speaking of something that in this world is more of a rarity 
if not in some case an oddity, than an actuality. But how good it is when we come together and we are one in Christ. But in order that happens, something has to precede it, and Jesus said that in John 3 when he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. This is not something that happens because we manage to learn all the ethical standards and embrace similar values and have a commonality on that level, but rather there is something transpiring on the interior of our lives called the Spirit of God that begins to create a bond with others who have that same spirit. And it's not a prejudicial spirit. It's not a spirit that devalues people who don't have Christ living in them, but it recognizes that no one comes to the fulfillment of their ordained purpose in life until they have been born again. That there's a dimension of life that you do not have if you do not have the Spirit of God living in your life. And those of us who have entered into Christ through believing on him, we understand it so clearly. It, it stands right out, and we recognize that we were lost, but now we're found. We were blind, now we're see. That we once were dead, but now there's a life in us that was not normal life. And as that takes place, we begin to find an attraction to other people who can understand it. In the same way when you share an experience of your life and someone says to you, I had the same thing happen. And we feel this kind of connection at that moment that we've walked at least part of our time along the same path. In Christ, we begin to find those connections as well. As we talk with each other and begin to discover, you know Jesus too. You walk with Jesus. Now I know that uh, it may seem strange to us that Jesus would begin by using kind of political language, but he uses ecclesia, this political word, really to describe a new kind of nationality that he was creating. His was going to be the kingdom of God, not a kingdom upon earth, as he later explained to the overly materially minded Pontius Pilate when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. My kingdom is from another place, or of another kind, more literally. It was a kingdom that revolved not around place, but around a person. As Peter and John would later explain in, in, in Acts 4, they said, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name given to men by which we must be saved. One of the things that people wrestle with is the exclusivity of the body of Christ. And yet it is an exclusivity that exists not because it's not open to everyone. Jesus said, whomsoever believe can enter the kingdom of God, but it's only those who are, is a whomsoever who has actually believed who can experience that and who can know what that's like. Now I know some of you were taught that the church was built upon Peter and therefore salvation is only found in the church of Rome. Do you know, though, that no bishop of Rome ever claimed to have primacy over the rest of the church, at least until the third century? Peter certainly never did. We can't even prove for certain that Peter was even in Rome or he actually died there. In fact, it wasn't until the year 325 AD when a bishop by the name of Stephen asserted that he was the bishop of bishops over all of the other bishops. <laughs> Shortly afterwards, Cyprian of Carthage, the bishop of the church of Carthage, called together a council of 82 other bishops, 
places like uh, uh, Antioch and, and Nicaea and a whole list of other places. And they branded Stephen as a heretic and a false teacher for making such claim. So today, those, obvious, those claims are, 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 should be pretty obvious, but it's interesting. Cyprian, who condemns Stephen, who claimed to be the pope, is also canonized within the Catholic Church as one of the saints. And if that doesn't make sense to you, then I, I can repeat it. <laughs> but what we have in this passage, and why I begin here, is not only because it's the first declaration of the church, but it is also the passage that's often used to distort and misrepresent what Jesus said and what the church actually is. But first of all, Jesus says to Peter, he says, you are Peter. The word is Petros, it's, a, it's in the masculine form, and it's basically equivalent to what was Peter's Aramaic name. We believe today that the language which was spoken commonly wasn't Greek, but rather it was Aramaic and that our texts are written in Greek because that was the language of the empire. But the fact is in daily conversation, they would have referred to each other in their Aramaic terms. And Cephas or Kephos is the actually the, the Aramaic name. And you know what it means? It means the same thing that Petros means, a stone. Peter, you are a stone. And what Jesus was setting out to do was to make a distinction so that we wouldn't misunderstand what was saying. He's being extremely clear in what he's communicating. Basically, he says, you know what you are, Peter? You're a piece of rock. You're a stone. We might call him Rocky. Right? But then Jesus goes on to say, and on this rock, different word, I will build my church. It's the word Petra. And Petra is in the feminine form, so it can't be the same as what he's referring to Peter. And it means a massive rock, a Gibraltar, a, a half dome in Yosemite, or even on the far left, we see the city of Petra, which is a city that's carved out of a stone mountain in Jordan today that you can visit, an Nabataean city. And that's what the word Petra means. It means a large foundation stone that a building can be built upon. I mean, think about it for a moment. If you built your house upon a stone, you either have a very, very tiny house or else you have a house that's really sitting on just bare ground. And if you try to build a church on a man, it will be just a church built on bare ground. And houses that are built on bare ground don't last very long. No, you want to build it on a firm foundation. You want to build it on solid rock. In fact, Jesus, using the same word Petra, said in John, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 25, he said, Hear, the man who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock. Built it on what? On the Petra, on that massive foundation stone. It will not fall because its foundation is on the Petra is on that solid rock. One of the saddest things and one of the most disturbing false theology is to transfer the status of Christ as the foundation of our faith and place it upon such a fallible individual as Peter and those who claim to be his descendants in that role. 
But if that's not even clear enough, let's see what Paul said when he elaborated on his ministry work to the Corinthians by saying to them in 1 Corinthians 3.10. He says, I laid a foundation. No one can lay any other foundation than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation of the church. So it's clear that the foundation upon which the church was built was not on Peter, but on what Peter said Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is our foundation for the church. It should be the foundation of our life, the belief that he is the Messiah Christ who came into the world to die for our sins and was resurrected for our eternal life. Therefore, what he's telling us is simply it's faith alone in Christ that allows someone to be both saved and to enter the church. And that's where, again, I say it's so tragic because, you know, people have accused me of time, time and again of saying, well, you don't like Catholics. Well, that's really not true. I don't like, I like Catholics. I grew up and <laughs> surrounded by Catholic friends. They love to play games on me, come to church with us. And so I'd go and I'd sit down and, and my friend thought it was really funny that since I didn't know the liturgy, he would stand up in the middle of service, and so I would stand up, and then I'd find him the only one standing. And then he would sit down, and I mean, I was confused, especially because in those days it was all in Latin anyway. But that's not really the issue. What I do have an issue is the outrageous and blasphemous claim that a man is standing in the place of Christ and his authority and sin can only be forgiven through him and his agency and that salvation can only be found by having membership in their organization and I would not even go so far to say their church but their organization. That's heresy of the worst kind. But secondly, what the gospel reveals to us what is both the mission that the church is called to fulfill. And first of all, he said in Mark 16, 15, that you're to go into all the world and preach the good news. That the singular commission, the most central aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, is to live our lives in a way that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it does imply a very verbal proclamation to confess with our mouths as well as to believe in our hearts. And we live in an era where we're suddenly told it's not polite to be so forward about your faith, so you need to be very cautious that you don't push your thing upon other people. But the whole point is the assumption in that statement is that what I have is just a thing that's just for me. Every person in the world needs what you and I have because without it, they cannot go to heaven. They cannot experience eternal life. They will suffer eternal separation and torment from God. That they won't go into, as many people think of hell, as a broad place, but they will go into hell, which is a very confined and constricted place. Whereas C.S. Lewis says, you become not human, but you become nothing more like, than like a smudge of grease on a glass. It's the worst diminishing of your personhood and your identity that is possible. But secondly, as a consequence of that preaching the gospel, some people are going to believe and they're, they're going to accept the message. And the church is responsible for doing 
some other things. Number one, we are called to make disciples. Not just save them, but make disciples out of them. And the term disciple literally means somebody who is disciplined in the ways of his master so that you and I become students of the life of Jesus. When we read the Gospels, it's not simply so that we can say, wow, wasn't he fantastic? What a healer, what a miracle worker. But rather to say, God, how can I begin to absorb the person and the values of Christ into my life? and began to make him the hero. I think it's interesting that Jesus, when he said, don't call any man on earth your father because you have one father and he's in heaven. He wasn't telling you that you couldn't call your dad or father your parent. That wasn't his point, but he's saying, what does a father do? And the father's established a sense of who I am and what my identity is and what my purpose is. He says, no longer draw your sense of identity from man, but begin to draw your identity from Christ. That's why I study the scriptures, because I don't want to be exactly like my father was, especially because he only came to Christ on his deathbed. I want to become like Jesus more and more every day. And you know, I'm so close. <laughs> I'm, I'm this close. <laughs> but Although you and I fall so horribly short of the ideal, the ideal is still the target. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finish of our faith. As a teenager, we say, well, I don't want to grow up to be like my parents. And then we find out we do. <laughs> and that's why the parentage of Christ becomes so important to us. Lord, help me to immerse myself. It's called the significant other. You know, psychologists say that whatever you focus on, the person or persons around you, you will slowly begin to adapt their personality. And so when we find somebody very hateful and we hate them in return, we become hateful just like they're hateful. It's an amazing way that transference takes place. But when we focus on Jesus and really say, Lord, help me to understand who you are and, and how I should deal with these circumstances in my life in accordance with your nature, your character. The result is that we actually start becoming like him. And that's why I repeat over and over again that Jesus had one singular command that he repeated 20 times in the gospel and it was simply this, follow me. It couldn't get simpler, could it? Well, <laughs> the information is simple. <laughs> But in order to follow him, you also have to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him. But that's our responsibility is to not only teach discipleship, but to model discipleship. That within that rubric of discipleship, we're told to baptize people. And again, it does mean the immersion of a person in water, but it means so much more than that because it's the idea of what happens to a cucumber when it's put in a jar. In fact, the same word is used that way in Greek of turning a cucumber into a pickle. You immerse it in the brine, you saturate it, so the very flavor and substance of that cucumber is changed into something different. It's that idea of being saturated and immersed in the things of God so that we begin to find our lives flavored by Him. And we do it in the name or under the authority, the submission of ourselves to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, he says, and we teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
teaching people to obey everything I have commanded you. You know, that's where, if you're a parent, you understand this is a challenge. <laughs> because I realized as my kids grew up, I taught them all sorts of useless things that served them no good at all. But you can teach them things not only by the things that you say, but the fact that the things you say are a reflection of what you really are in pursuit of. Even teaching them the value of humility and confession when you say to them, I want you to forgive me for the way I reacted was wrong. I lost my temper. I shouldn't have said that. I didn't deal with that right. Would you forgive me? That in itself is a powerful lesson to kids. It's a powerful lesson for you and I, isn't it? It's one of the things that makes the church a safe place when that becomes an ethic that we have all embraced where we're saying essentially, I'm not gonna judge you or find fault with you. I'm gonna love you and tell you what the truth is. And we do it with a humility and an honesty. As Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 6.1, he says, you who are spiritual, that when we see our brother or sister overtaking a fault, we should go to them first and foremost, go to them in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, in other words, looking at yourself real honestly, and then you can begin to help and restore and rebuild them because you're not coming as the judge, you're coming like a doctor who's there to heal and to mend. What this naturally leads to is, in a sense, a, a, a new organism. That's why I refer to it as the birth of the church, not the creation of the church or the organization of the church or the, anything of that nature, the incorporation of the church. Because the church is essentially an organism. It's a, a living thing. That the organizing principle is not what we have decided it should be, but what it grows into because of the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. That essentially when we look at the Bible, it never really describes or outlines the format of the church. I remember as a young Christian trying to figure out, okay, what's the format for doing church? And I'd read every passage and then we'd try to organize ourselves in a way so that we were following the format and it was really not fun or good. <laughs> because what the Bible describes is not the format. It can take any kind of format. It doesn't have to be in a room like this or even in the order in which we do things, but rather it's about the function of the church that matters. Are we functionally healthy? Because churches like people can become dysfunctional. I don't want to go too far on that one. But you see, after his resurrection, we read in John 20, verse 22, that Jesus appeared to his disciples. And in my mind, that's when the church really began. Because at that moment, as he's looking at those 11 men, he says, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. In that moment, they became filled with the Spirit of God, and the church was birthed. It was a church of only 11 people. And as we follow the story, it suddenly we'll find there's 120 people. And then eventually there's 3,000 and then 5,000 more. And this thing begins to grow exponentially. It's growing faster than cancer. 
But the whole point is that it tells us in, in, in chapter 2, verse 47 of Acts, that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As peop, new people came into Christ, they were discipled, and they found themselves naturally melding with other believers. There were no membership drives. There were no campaigns or recruitments going on. You know, like one church I heard about one time where they, every, they were giving away motorbikes and cars and things like that to get people to join their church. And every time somebody would become a new member of the church, they had a goalpost behind the podium and they, the pastor would come up and <laughs> kick a field goal. I guess they'd play in the background, drop kick me Jesus into the goalpost of life or something. <laughs> There are all sorts of effective ways to get people in your church. I've thought of them. Free beer night. <laughs> Win a new car. <laughs> I mean, it's no end to the ideas that we can come up from a marketing pr perspective. But the problem is <laughs> that what you give is what you get. Because we're not looking at something that is inorganic, we want something that's very organically grown. That's something that as people come into a new relationship with Christ, they choose to hang out with other people who have that relationship with Christ, and as a result become more connected to their fellow believers than the old crew that they young, used to hang out with. Not because they don't like them or love them anymore, but suddenly you're having conversations about things that you are not passionate about. And you find people who know Christ and they're passionate about that relationship and you want to sit down and talk with them. And this is really what happens is in a way that you can member, measure your status as an, a believer by the kind of people that you enjoy most to be around. See, before long, this new church began to develop a new visibility. We call it the incarnational living, that Christ becomes evident in the lives of those people. They became a distinct community, even though they were part of the larger Jewish community, but more and more they became separated from the traditions and more embraced by the doctrine of Christ. So that we read in, in, in chapter 2 that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God. So initially they haven't changed their geography. They haven't changed their occupation. They haven't done anything different. It's just that when they had free time, they would go to the temple, to that part of the temple, which called Solomon's Colonnade, and there they would gather because that's where Jesus would teach from when he was in Jerusalem. And as they would gather to talk about the scriptures and Jesus and the work of God and to pray together and minister, something began to happen as others began to be drawn to the same audience. And the reason this is significant is that although Christianity requires an individual commitment, you know, God doesn't have any grandchildren. You, you can't inherit your faith. It has to be an individual decision that you make on your own, that even though it is individual in that sense, it was also not about individualism that is so prevalent today. That so many people today see themselves as, well, uh, you know, I have my faith and I, I, I live my life and I'm following Christ the way I want to, so don't bother me with your opinions or points of view or information. 
But I love what E.M. Bounds said once in one of his books on prayer. He wrote several. And he said, you know, the, the essence of art is self-expression. The essence of ministry is self-sacrifice. And therein lies the tension. Therein lies the tension. We want to live artistically. I want to express myself. Now today, there are a lot of artist, artists that I wish would stop expressing themselves. But the whole point is, that's what it's all about. It's about myself getting out there. I want people to know about me. It's like the cartoon I saw one time in Christianity Day of a, 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 a Christian singer with a microphone leaning up against the piano that was backing him up, and he says, the song I am about to share was given to me by the Lord, and if anybody copies it without my prior approval, I will sue you for everything you own. And you begin to realize suddenly it, it becomes marketing so that even my, my son who works in the Christian music industry said, well, it's the so-called Christian music industry because at the end of the day, it's really about marketing a product and making money from it than it is really seeking to further the message of the gospel. You see, Christianity was never intended to be a solo act as we find so clearly repeatedly reflected in the writings of Peter and of Paul. Paul said to the Romans, we who are many are one body in Christ and members of one another. To the Corinthians he said, there should be no disunion in the body, but that members mutual care for one another. Peter wrote, he says, all you must put on the garment of humility and serve one another. In fact, there are over 39 different one another passages. Just go to your, to your, to your uh, concordance or your Bible software and just type in one another and you'll see one after another after another after another, one after another, one another. In fact, this word that is used, alelon in, in Greek, is used by Jesus and the other New Testament writers to describe the one another relationship that we are called in order to build the church to look like him. And for good reason. Jesus said in John 13, 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When James says don't love in just word but also love in deed. He doesn't say one or the other. We need to word, love people in word. But we also need to love each other in deed. And I, I love that passage in John 13 except for a few, few, few words like must. You must love one another. I can't tell you how many times I have come to this point in my prayer life and where I'm complaining to God about somebody's actions or behaviors or words or whatever, and it comes to me in that moment as I'm asking God to pull their teeth out one at a time. <laughs> and he says, you must, you must love one another. Because without that, he says, the world won't see Jesus in us. 
We live in a vitriolic age. We, we live in a world that is castigating other people for sometimes justifiably, sometimes it's just empty talk. But we say all these things, we hear all these things, and sometimes on the, on the workplace we find that as we're having fellowship with somebody who shares our political convictions, we verbalize all sorts of unloving things about people. And we realize that we're overlooking what is the most fundamental aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We must love one another. We must. Otherwise, he said, people won't believe that you're a follower of Jesus. It has to take a practical, visible, up-close and personal expression in our lives. James even rebukes us. He said, when you say, be warmed and be filled, and then you turn your back and go your other way. When there's the ability in your hands, John said the same thing, that if you see someone in need and you have the ability to relieve them, but you don't do it and you walk away. He says, how does the love of God dwell in you? Well, let me tell you how it dwells in you is when you see that need and you sit back and say, Lord, how can I help? That's how the love of God dwells in you. At that moment, the love of God not only dwells in you, but it begins to flow through you because God wants you to be a channel. He doesn't want you to be a cesspool. He doesn't want you to just be a container of his love because over time it will begin to stink and become putrid because it's not flowing. God says, I want to flow through your life. And you can block that flow by making the decision, that person's beyond my ability to love. That person's beyond my ability to forgive. That will cost me too much if I engage in that challenge. And that's why we find that to make this happen, the church really developed a a new way of of daily living. We might call it a new spiritual liturgy. He speaks about it in chapter 2 in verse 42 of Acts where he says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they were so teachable, they were so into studying the word of God that it was identified as a devoted heart that they didn't read the Bible or spend time together in church and worship simply because that was the obligation and they hoped God would raise the score on their bowling score if they went to church, like I used to do when I was a kid. I went to VBS because I thought, you know, right afterwards I'd go to the bowling league and I thought, well, I'll do this religious thing and then God will help me to up my score. Didn't work, but... But there's a devotion to that thing so that God's word isn't just something that we carry around with it, but be something that we are really focused on making central in our life. He said that secondly, they devoted themselves to fellowship. In other words, they engaged in this word koinonia, which it becomes a defining word of Christian fellowship because it's such a broad word in its application. It talks about uh, associating with each other, living in community with each other, communion with each other, joint participation, sharing intimacy, in other words, You can't have koinonia and be a lone ranger. You can't be the man on the hill. You have to be in the valleys with other people, on the streets with other people. It means you become part of their life. The thirdly says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which to us, you know, it's like, okay, I'll take some people out to lunch. I'll even pay half of it. You see, in the Middle East, the breaking of bread has a whole symbolic meaning to it, that you 
break bread with people, and when you do, you are now family. That's why one of the greatest honors in the Middle East you can be offered is for somebody to invite you into their home to break bread with them. Because the moment they break bread, they're basically saying, you are my brother, you are my sister, and I'm committed to whatever is good for you, and I will resist any evil that comes your way. It raises us to a whole different status of meaning and significance. They broke bread. Some people say, well, they took communion together. Well, that too, but you know, communion for them wasn't just this event that we do like at the end of our service. Communion was part of what they called their love feasts. They sat down together and they ate and they shared their lives. And then fourthly, he said they, there was prayer, which essentially the word that's used here is very specific in Greek. It, it refers to the seeking of God to, in community. It's not just that, yeah, I prayed this morning. No, it's a seeking of God in a kind of communal setting where we are seeking to experience God. And what's interesting is this, this methodology that Jesus gave us was so effective that the church began to grow exponentially. So that he tells us in chapter two in verse 41, he says those who accepted the message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that very day. Again in chapter four he says the number of men grew to about 5,000. The church, the first church became a mega church overnight. I've always been confused by people saying, well I don't believe in big churches. You mean you believe in small churches? Is that the goal? We're few but we're impotent. <laughs> no. The problem is we've turned it into a measuring stick by which we boast. But essentially we find that this group of people became so large that they couldn't meet in an ordinary place. In chapter 5 it says, and all the believers met together in Solomon's colonnade, that colonnaded porch all around the outside of the courts of the Gentiles. Day after day in the temple courts, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. But as always the case, this eventually led to opposition. You see, nobody objects to the church as long as it's not having an impact. But the minute moment the church or you as an individual begin to have an impact and influence, you're going to find that Satan is going to come after you with everything he has. I remember one guy coming up to me at prayer years ago and came up for prayer and says, I really want to get serious about pursuing the Lord and growing in Christ. And I said, great, praise the Lord, we prayed, and out he went. Came back two weeks later and he says, I'm not doing that anymore. And I said, why not? He says, Satan tore my life apart. Yeah, <laughs> because you're dangerous to him. The church becomes the target of enemy opposition when it becomes vibrant and effective. That's just the name of the game. And so we read in chapter 8 that great persecution came. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And it says Saul, who later becomes the apostle Paul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women, put them in prison, and those who had been scattered, diaspero in the Greek, important word, preached the word wherever they went. You see, the word diaspero, where we get the word dispersion or diaspora, means that they were, it was the scattering of seed. Yes, they were being driven out of Jerusalem, but instead of destroying it, they were spreading it. Instead of putting the fire out by 
In closing it, they scatter the ashes everywhere, and when the ashes are spread, the angels of God come and blow on them, and the fire spreads to other places, and everywhere they went, as scattered embers, maybe they were being burned up and consumed, but they became that thing that started and ignited fires all over the places they went to. You see, we may not like to hear it. No, I, I take that back. We do not like to hear that the church is at its best when things are at their worst. We have this concept, well, we're at our best when things are going super. And yet he says, we're at your best when things are at their worst because then we humble ourselves before God and say, God, this is, as I, we were sharing in prayer this morning, I, I just was sharing about a series of things that happened in our lives that, you know, it's kind of like, I said, I've gotten to the point where it's so overwhelming and impossible for me to address that I just simply say, Lord, it's yours, I give up. That's when we're at our best, when we get up and said, I can't, but God can. If anything's gonna happen, if it's gonna live, it's gonna live because God chose to make it live. In fact, it was the church father, Tertullian, in the second century who made one of the most memorable statements about the church when he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So it was for the next 250 years, the church would prove the truth of Tertullian's words, both figuratively and sometimes literally, they went underground. That's why we have the catacombs in Rome. And they have catacombs in Spain. They're underground tombs, and that's where the Christians would go to worship because they were out of sight. Not that they didn't continue to have public meetings, but the true locus of the church became people's homes. In Acts 20, 20, Paul even says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach you both publicly and from house to house. In Romans 16, 33 and through five, he says, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ. Greet also the church that meets in their house. And four more times in his letters, he talks about the church that's meeting in various people's homes. Now, what, again, this is how we get off on tangents. Some people say, well, church should only happen within a home. But it didn't just happen at home. Paul rented the teaching hall of Tyrannus because he had so many people to speak to, they wouldn't have fit in a home. They met in homes because that was practically what was available. And yet there are movements in, in Christianity called house churches, and they say basically what we're doing here is, is not spiritual. We need to meet in houses because somehow God likes houses better than buildings like this. But it's not that one is, that home churches were more spiritual. It's just simply because being a Christian was illegal, and that was the only option. But that all changed in the year 1313 A.D. when Constantine became emperor of Rome. With half the Roman Empire by that point, Embracing Christianity after a series of 10 consecutive persecutions by Roman emperors against the church, suddenly we find that half the empire has converted to Christ anyway. There's a question, what was Constantine's motive? Was he really a Christian? His mother certainly was, and some people say it was just you know, politically prudent to do it because it was such a unifying force within the empire. I tend to believe that his faith was sincere, although he was only baptized on his deathbed. 
But overnight what happened is the church became favored by the government and began benefiting directly from the public largest. Large basilicas began to be built. Later we call them cathedrals. But there are many that are still existing like the original St. Peter's or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or the Church of Nativity. And even though many times they were destroyed by the Muslims and others, they were rebuilt again. Massive structures that were being put forth in a way of saying, our God is better than your God. And you can tell because we have a bigger building. They were built over what was supposed to be sacred sites and suddenly the idea of place being sacred became ingrained in the, in, the, in the fabric of the Christian world so that we need to make pilgrimage to certain places and oftentimes for the profit of those who are running them even as it happens today. But little by little, ritual began to replace any real religious fervor and faith in their life. Whoops. Love technology. <laughs> Ritual began to replace relationships as the glue that kind of held the church together. Incantations replaced incarnational living. In other words, if we just say something over you and wave certain ways, then suddenly you have a blessing instead of saying, no, the blessing comes when I try to incarnate Christ in my own life. Display becomes more important than devotion. In other words, what people can see on the outside makes more of a difference than what God knows to be true on the inside. And today we can look at the tremendous success and realize it came at a tragic cost because function was replaced by form and formula and format. Andrews Wall, a church historian, summarized it really well. He says, when Christianity is in a place of power and wealth, the radical message of sin and grace and the cross can become muted or even lost. Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion, one that's for respectable people who try to be good, and eventually it becomes virtually dormant. And for very simple reason, as Paul would explain, that in your weakness, his strength is manifested, not in your strength. This is so well illustrated by an event from the life of Thomas Aquinas, who was a 13th century theologian. Some people, he became ultimately canonized, although he was kind of vilified by many churchmen during his lifetime. It's funny how that works. But the story goes that Thomas Aquinas was invited by Pope Alexander IV to visit St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And as he was being shown around the Vatican grounds, they entered a room where the Pope showed him the church treasury. There were priests counting a lot of money. And so the Pope very proudly said to him, you see, Thomas, Gone are the days when the church will say, silver and gold, we have none. And Thomas, with amazement, replied, and gone are the days that we can say, rise up and walk. 
They gain silver and gold in exchange for the power of God that works through our weakness. I think we do well to remember the words of the first martyr of the church. Stephen said in Acts 7, the most high does not live in houses made by men. As a prophet said, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? The point is very obvious, I think. He lives inside of our hearts. And if he lives in our hearts, he manifests himself through our love for other people. And that love realizes that there's no part of the body of Christ or outside the body of Christ that is unimportant or inconsequential. Because lovelessness is consequential. It has consequences. But the impact that we have is to be able to say that we are committed to loving each other. We love God personally. You can't know Christ unless you know him personally. But you have to love people impersonally. What do I mean by that? It means that I am committed to loving you even though I don't have a personal relationship with you. I'm committed to praying and asking God to help me find a way to love the people around me, even though I don't have a personal relationship with them. It means that when you're in the, in the store or you're in the plane or you're on a bus or you're traveling around, you recognize that you have an obligation to treat every single person you encounter with a source of a sense of kindness and, and value, that they're not just somebody there to serve your needs at the moment. But behind every face, there's a a soul that God created in his image. And he says, I I want you to labor to be loving and to be kind. I don't want to pretend that that's easy for me any more than I know it's easy for you to do. There's some people in this world who invite lovelessness. And yet, rather than thinking that our job is to settle the score and put people straight and make sure that they respect my boundaries, I just need to put up a whole new set of boundaries. Jesus loves you. Remember once when I first married and we were living in Denver, Colorado, and uh, our car needed, wasn't, wasn't working right, and so I took it to the shop and found a shop there and uh, Jonas, oh, okay, come back. And he, uh, I left and came back a couple hours later after I'd done doing my business and, and realized that he hadn't even started on my car yet. And so he saw me, so he jumped up and immediately went on. And what he did was, you know, he just simply cleaned off the contacts on my battery, you know, <laughs> put them back on, and zoom, suddenly it was working fine. And then he sat down, he started writing my bill, he charged me for two hours' labor. And I sat there looking at thinking, Lord, how do I deal with this? And so I, I very naively simply said, has anybody ever told you about Jesus? And he reared back and said, I was a Christian before you were ever born. How dare you say that? He started ranting on me. I go, okay, how much do I owe you? <laughs> you see, rationalization is the homage we pay to a guilty conscience. <laughs> I just thought, God, you know, you know, I don't want to be that guy who says, 
Let's take it down right now, you and me, right here, you and me, me, mano y mano. Just let me find a big ranch first. <laughs> there are people like that that you're going to encounter in your life who will lie to you, they'll cheat from you, they'll steal from you, they'll, they're just bitter, twisted, broken people. And there's nothing more challenging than to love somebody like that. But you know, love doesn't mean you let people take advantage of you or misuse you, but it does mean that you speak the truth to them in love. And you say it in a way that says to them, you know, I actually care about you. I'm disappointed in how you're behaving, but I, I know you're, there's a person of worth inside that skin. And if you knew the love of Jesus, you wouldn't be so angry. That's desperately needed in the day and age in which we live, friends. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we begin our journey to understand what the church is and what it isn't, and that you would help us to have spiritual insight, spiritual understanding, that on the inside, Lord, we would begin to grasp the reality of the fact that the moment we came to you, we became part of the church. Forgive us, Lord, for our natural tendency to want to keep things at an arm's length and to protect ourselves. We all have enough hurt and pain and disappointment and betrayal and all the rest that we could rationalize that for the end of the rest of our lives. And yet, Lord, you said to us very clearly, regardless, you must love one another. Help us to get there, Lord. Help us to get there. Give us that humility to confess our weakness and our willingness to receive your strength that we might learn how to love as you have loved us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.